0: You might have heard of an effect known as the Streisand effect. It describes how an attempt to censor information often has the unintended consequence of bringing it to everyone's attention. This clip from It's History explains how the name of this effect has come to be associated with Barbara Streisand. In 2003, photographer Kenneth Edelman took
1: 12,000 photos of the California coastline to help document coastal erosion, right? One of those photos, one, was of Barbara Streisand's Malibu mansion. Well, Streisand sued unsuccessfully to have the photo removed from the public collection. The effect was simple. Before the lawsuit, the photo had been downloaded six times, two of those by Streisand's attorney. In the first month after the lawsuit, the photo was downloaded nearly half a million times. Didn't really work out the way Barbara planned.
0: In this episode, I'd like to propose a second inverse effect, the Strahan effect. Let's say you've seen Michael Strahan commentating on football or hosting Kelly and Michael, Good Morning America, or the $100,000 Pyramid. If someone asked you to describe his most distinctive feature, what would be your response? If you're like the five people I asked in my informal poll, it would be the big gap between his two front teeth. Here on GMA Strahan and Sarah Haynes speak with Paul Shear, another man with a big gap between his front teeth the afro look great look but you know it's even a better look yeah that gap baby boy that gap nice in your gap. teeth look <laughs> we you, got this we got you do you embrace it like I do of course I embrace it like I mean I've not changed it but people tell me all the time like hey you know you got a gap in your teeth I'm like
2: Yeah, I know. I look every day. I dare you to ask a surprise one time. There's a (laughs) cap?
0: No one told me. They're like, you can fix it. I go, I know. This is a choice that I've made. You know what? I get that all the time. And one of my greatest moments is I was invited to a, um, and I was like the the headliner at a dental convention. (laughs) I, I swear to God, I, it was one of the best moments. I got so many cards from dentists trying to fix my teeth.
2: You know there was money down on that if you land Strahan's Gap. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Closed
2: it up. Yes. <laughs>
0: it's so funny, and don't you feel like people want to connect to you? Like, they are like, hey, uh, I know a friend who has a gap in my teeth. like, yeah, well, it doesn't mean that we're, like, related or something <laughs> like that. According to Strahan, he came close to having the gap in his teeth closed, but ultimately decided against it, figuring the gap was as much a part of his identity as his Hall of Fame pro football career and his fun-loving TV personality. If Strahan's right, his success is in no small part due to his unique teeth, which make him stand out. And the career downswings of actors like Mickey Rourke and Jennifer Grey can be explained based upon changes to their previously recognizable facial features. And if Strahan's right, it's highly unlikely that Joseph Webster killed the Roy Owens.
3: Hi and welcome to Undisclosed. This is The Strahan Effect, the second episode in our three-episode series about Joseph Webster, a Nashville man who's in prison for the 1998 murder of Leroy Owens. My name is Rabia Chaudhry. I'm an attorney and author of the book Adnan's Story. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts and colleagues, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller.
1: Hi, I'm Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C. at Clinton and P P L C PLLC, and I blog at The View from LL2.
0: Hi, this is Colin Miller, I'm an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I blog at EvidenceProfBlog.
3: As we noted last episode, there was one eyewitness identification in this case. The day after the murder, Tammy Nelson picked out the photo of Joseph Webster as one of the men who had come by her apartment the day of the murder and five to six times in the weeks before the murder. Nelson also gave a general description of Joseph Webster, African-American, somewhat heavyset, not as tall as the other guy he was with. But in all of her police statements and her trial testimony, there's an important feature that Nelson did not mention.
0: And even at the time of arrest, Tammy Nelson didn't notice Joseph Webster had a gold grill, 12 gold teeth that family says you could see from 30 yards away. Even when she identified him, she admitted she didn't see any gold. She made the claim that the person that she saw in broad daylight multiple times before this murder took place did not have gold teeth and that she would sure remember gold.
3: Now, it's always difficult to Monday morning quarterback, but given that the murder was in 1998 and the trial wasn't held until 2006, what do you think you would do with regard to Webster's gold teeth at trial if you were defense counsel? The seemingly likely answer would be to establish when Webster got his gold teeth and defang Nelson's identification by hammering her on cross-examination over the fact that she never mentioned that the perpetrator had gold teeth. Webster's trial counsel did neither. This was an omission that Joseph Webster still remembers 13 years later.
4: The questions that I wrote down on paper for him to ask, he never asked. He never asked the, the, the witness, none of that. And he was telling me, no, nah, we can't we can't ask that right now. We can't ask that type of question. And I'm telling him that this is my life that, that I'm fighting for.
0: And I know it's been 13 years since that trial, but do you remember some of the questions you wanted him to ask?
4: wanted him to ask specifically about uh, how did she how did she know me and describe me, and she couldn't do and he didn't want to do that because I have gold teeth and I know that and she specifically said in trial that he didn't have gold teeth in his mouth. Right. And I have twelve of them which I've been having since 1995, three years prior to this case, and I still have them to this day.
1: When Webster brought a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel, his trial counsel, quote, admitted that the trial transcript reflected that he did not question Tammy Nelson about the gold teeth. Further, trial counsel admitted that he did not call a dentist to testify about when the teeth had been mounted. Appellate counsel rectified this latter omission. He, quote, presented the testimony of Dr. Ulysses Walls, a Nashville dentist. Dr. Walls testified that in 1995 or 1996, he placed six permanent gold teeth in Webster's upper jaw. The teeth were distinct in that they had the initials JW on them. Moreover, Webster testified at the hearing that by the end of 1996, he had a total of 12 gold teeth, six in the upper jaw and six in the lower jaw. The defense even had a school photo of Webster from 1996 that showed him with a full set of gold teeth. So what's the legal significance here of trial counsel failing to address the issue? In a Kansas case, The primary evidence in the prosecution of Capel Simpson was identification by two officers who never mentioned the fact that Simpson had numerous gold teeth. Because the trial judge refused to give a cautionary jury instruction about the issues with eyewitness identifications, the Court of Appeals of Kansas granted Simpson a new trial, quote, because identification of Simpson was a key issue in the case. But in Joseph Webster's case, The Tennessee court found that his trial counsel's failure to raise issues related to his gold teeth did not undermine confidence in the jury's verdict and was not enough to award him a new trial. So what can eyewitness identifications tell us about the Strahan effect? Colin reached out to Shari Berkowitz. She's an assistant professor of criminal justice administration at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and also an expert in eyewitness identifications. She's testified in many criminal trials, and here's what she had to say about research related to eyewitnesses failing to mention distinctive facial features.
5: I cannot think of any research on this area, but I do think that in general, when it comes to a perpetrator having what we call a distinguishing feature, whether it's the gold teeth or the Harry Potter scar, things like this, that ultimately... I think this would really depend on the context of the interaction between then the witness and the perpetrator. So things I'd be interested in knowing is how close the people were when they were having their interaction, what the lighting was like when this occurred, this interaction occurred. Were they speaking for just a few seconds? Were they speaking for a few minutes, for an hour? What's the context in terms of the stress of the interaction, Uh, whether or not these interactions were stressful or even violent, um, might also influence what we perceive and ultimately what we remember.
3: When was the last time you went to a dermatologist? Because I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever been to a dermatologist. Look, it's not cheap. And between a dermatologist and high-priced department store brands, gimmicky marketing tricks, disappointing products that don't perform, it's often impossible to know where to put our money and trust what's really going to help your skin. Look, nobody's trying to look 18 again, but I do want to look like I sleep seven hours and I drink eight glasses of water a day and our skin deserves more than just a trend. It deserves the real deal. Well, ForHers.com is the new women's wellness brand that cuts the cost and delivers you one of dermatologists. Dermatologist's go-to solution for aging skin. 4HERS was fought for by a woman for women, and it's helping women deal with aging skin. You don't have to take travel time out of your already busy day because 4HERS provides access to licensed doctors online. A doctor will evaluate you and, if appropriate, can prescribe you a treatment that can be delivered direct to your door. No more in-person dermatologist visits, no more pharmacy lines, and no more insurance needed. And look, everybody's skin is different, so the doctor can help you tailor a treatment to yours prescription high strength retinoid face cream is here to help smooth the appearance of fine lines give you even skin texture and get rid of a dull complexion without keeping your face stuck in one expression you know what i'm talking about and those smile lines while well, it does mean you've laughed a lot but even so there's some parts of our skin that maybe we want to renew And I hate to say this, but if it's not prescription skincare, you may as well just apply marketing to your face, all right? So order now. Our listeners can get their first month of anti-aging formula from hers for $10 off right now while supplies last. And of course, subject to doctor approval. Just check out the website for full details. Go to forhers.com slash undisclosed. That's F-O-R-H-E-R-S dot com slash undisclosed. Forhers.com slash undisclosed. Restrictions apply. See website for full details and safety information.
0: So while there's not specific research on this subject, a lot of the factors that Professor Berkowitz mentions makes it likely that Nelson should have noticed the gold teeth. She saw the perpetrator six to seven times at close range in broad daylight. She saw him both stressful and unstressful situations. And she described speaking to the perpetrator at length on a couple of occasions. And while the research can't tell us definitively whether Tammy Nelson would have noticed Joseph Webster's teeth if he were the perpetrator, there are two people who are convinced she would have. One is Webster's mother, Marie Burns. Your son Joseph has the, the 12 gold teeth, right?
4: Been having them, yes. Even the doctor that put them in said he been he wanted to put them in.
0: And when you talk to him, how obvious would it be to a person that he has gold teeth?
4: You can't miss them. You can't miss them. You can't miss them, period. This was just a brim, brim, brim whatever you call them things. Kind of. But they, they're his chief. He can't take them off, and he
0: can't put them back on. He can't take them out of his mouth, period. The second is Joseph Webster himself.
4: I mean, if I speak to you or talk to you,
0: mm.
4: it's very obvious that you can tell I can't have them. It's, it's 12 of them.
0: Right. And so when this witness, Tammy Nelson, gives police statements and takes the stand and says... This is the guy I talked to, and she doesn't say that he has gold teeth or doesn't mention the gold teeth. That leads you to conclude what?
4: Uh, that I knew
0: at the time, I uh-huh. knew
4: that she had the wrong
0: person. Right.
4: Because she particularly stated that uh, these people came by her house on multiple occasions, more, more than once, more than three or four times. She stated that they came in the daytime, the nighttime. She said she's seen their face. You know clearly, and that's the thing about my situation. If you see my face clearly, and I've spoken to you, and we had any type of dinner or conversation, then you will most that will be the first thing that you would remember.
0: In other words, the Strahan effect. If you talk to Michael Strahan, you're going to remember the gap between his front teeth. If you talk to Joseph Webster, you're going to remember his mouthful of gold teeth. So, does this mean that Tammy Nelson didn't talk with Joseph Webster?
3: One person who might be able to answer this question is Lakita Smith. If you've been taking notes on these first two episodes and looking for her name, you'd be in the same position as Joseph Webster's appellate counsel. You wouldn't find it. Webster's current counsel would not get the documents revealing her existence until years later. So, who is Lakita Smith? According to those documents, Lakita Smith was present when the two perpetrators came to Tammy Nelson's place and started attacking Leroy Owens on the day of the murder. Tammy Nelson said that one of the perpetrators got a stick from the white station wagon and started hitting Owens, but Lakita Smith said that the perpetrator grabbed the stick out of Nelson's hand and started hitting Owens. And while Tammy Nelson claimed that she paged the perpetrators in good faith to tell them Owens was home because she thought they were his cousins, Lakita Smith apparently said that Nelson was setting Owens up and she knew that the men meant to do him harm. If this story is true, it might explain a troubling part of Nelson's story. In her first two police statements, Tammy Nelson didn't mention a pager. Instead, she said she called the perpetrators to tell them that Leroy Owens was home. It wasn't until her third police interview months later that she said that the men gave her their pager number on a piece of paper and that she paged them to say that Owens was home. And at this point, Nelson said she had thrown out the piece of paper with the pager number. If Tammy Nelson was an innocent dupe, this behavior makes no sense because it would hinder the investigation into her friend's murder. But if Nelson were complicit in the crime, then her behavior makes all the sense in the world. And her behavior worked. Even though Joseph Webster claimed at trial that he didn't have a pager, it didn't matter. Without a pager number, the police and prosecutors couldn't corroborate or dispel the claims by Nelson and Webster. But now, over a decade later... That may no longer be the case. As we noted in episode one, the prevailing theory is that Joseph Webster's brother, Kenny Neal, committed the crime with his friend and right-hand man, Philip Cotton. This is a theory subscribed to by Joseph Webster.
4: And she stated in trial that there's something wrong with my eye. Something wrong with one of my eyes or something. And that's how she know it. that's how she remembered me that day. Well, there's nothing wrong with my eye, Period.
0: And your brother Kenny had a friend, Philip Cotton. Did you ever meet or know Philip Cotton?
4: Yeah, I know him.
0: And he has something wrong with his eye, right?
4: Yeah,
0: yeah. And so you think when she was making that statement, do you think she was talking about Philip Cotton and his eye?
4: I know she was because, like I said, I knew my brother had committed the crime. And the person that he was hanging around at the time was him and Philip Cotton. And she, the description that she described to the jury and to the court was both descriptions of my brother and Philip Cotton. I, I'm much hairier than my brother and Philip Cotton. So the panels that she was describing described both of them.
1: Other people in the courtroom who knew both Kenny Neal and Joseph Webster had the same takeaway.
2: The description that they gave in court um, was Kenny. <laughs> like, it, I, I just don't I don't understand how the legal system works. You know, I, I've been in trouble before, and I just, man, justice isn't for everyone.
1: If Tammy Nelson was describing Kenny Neal, and if he committed the crime with Philip Cotton, it stands to reason that the pager number they gave her was either Neal's number or Cotton's number. Well, guess what? Webster's current attorney was able to obtain records that were connected to a controlled drug buy that took place less than a year after the murder, which involved a confidential informant setting up Philip Cotton. And in those records, it notes that to contact Philip Cotton, the CI paged him.
0: Did you know, on average, it takes police 45 minutes to respond to a home security alarm? Almost an hour. When a home security system is triggered, a lot of the time police assume it's a false alarm and the call goes to the bottom of the list. But not with Safe home security. Safe has video verification technology, which helps police get on the scene up to 3.5 times faster. Safe can visually confirm that a break-in is happening and let the police know, making their average police response time just 7 minutes. Simply Safe also protects every door, window, and room with 24 7 professional monitoring. They make it easy on you. There's no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. It's won a ton of awards from CNET to the New York Times to Wirecutter. Prices are always fair and honest, and they have around the clock monitoring starting at just $15 a month. Simply put, I've been using Simply Safe for the past two years, and I've never felt safer. And now you, my listeners, can feel the same. Simply Safe has a huge deal going on right now. Go to simplysafeundisclosed.com and get free shipping and a money back guarantee. That's simplysafeundisclosed.com today. Simplysafeundisclosed.com.
1: At this point, you might imagine the next steps in the investigation. First, ask Tammy Nelson whether this was the pager number she was given. And two, track down Lakita Smith and ask her about the crime show her the photos of Webster, Neil, and Cotton, and ask her about the pager number. Because guess what? The police records show that she too was given the pager number. And while we'd certainly hope and believe that these steps are being taken, they're not being taken by us. As we'll discuss in episode three, there is in fact a current investigation into Joseph Webster's case, and we've understandably been asked not to interfere with it. But it's entirely possible that these leads have already turned up exculpatory evidence. And there's also already other exculpatory evidence in the case. The first is the location of the drug deal in this case on the south side of Nashville. Again, here's Shawana Norman. How big of a drug dealer was Kenny
2: Neal? He, I mean, he had a little weight. He had a little weight. So.
4: And was Joseph dealing with him too?
2: Not with him. Joseph stayed on the east side of town. That's the thing. My sister used to catch calves and stuff out east with Joseph. Joseph really didn't fool around out south unless he came to my granny house. So Kenny, Kenny was, was the one fooled around. Kenny, like I, we, I used to go to um, a house in Vine Hill with Kenny. You know, Vine Hill is in South Nashville. Kenny like dealt dealt around our south. Edge and,
4: Hill, Vine Hill.
2: Yeah, and you know, he, other areas, but he Kenny didn't discriminate. He came to whatever part of town the money was at. Right. And Joseph just hung out what around settle and out east. Out east. Yeah. Out east. Over so, around Casey and that area. Uh, North Second and all that. Yeah. Okay. And then
1: there's Tammy Nelson's initial identification of Joseph Webster. From the record, it's unclear whether the detective who showed Nelson the photo array used any of the modern techniques that many jurisdictions have adopted to increase the reliability of eyewitness identifications. And it's 100% clear that this identification wasn't what's called a double-blind eyewitness identification. Again, here's Shari Berkowitz.
4: When
5: it comes to how to present these lineups, we have advocated for what's called double blind lineup procedures. These are procedures where presumably then the witness doesn't know coming into the lineup who they're going to see, but also the same should be true for the investigator or officer administering the lineup. And so when a witness is viewing the lineup, whether it's a photo lineup or what we call a live lineup of six actual people, um, the number may vary, what ultimately we prefer to see is that the officer who's there with the witness collecting their identification evidence is not familiar with who the suspect is. And the reason for this is because we don't want the officer to clue the witness as to who to pick. And of course, uh, this could happen maliciously, but we see in our studies and in real-life cases this could even happen inadvertently. When it comes to uh, a witness, if their eyes back and forth between, let's say, photographs two and three in a photo lineup, we really don't want the officer to make any comments whatsoever about, oh, I noticed you're really looking a lot at number two and three. Does two look more familiar? Because even comments like this can clue the witness as to who to pick.
0: What's also clear is that Nelson's identification wasn't recorded and wasn't accompanied by a confidence statement. Both techniques that Professor Berkowitz says are now among best practices.
5: Recording the eyewitness's immediate confidence statement. So when the witness then does finally say, or quickly say, uh, that person right there, number four, it's important that we obtain, in the witness's own words, how confident they are in that identification. And, of course, because sometimes police reports can be um, less thorough than eyewitness memory researchers might like, it's also important that we videotape the entire identification procedure so that we can understand and see what it is that the uh, officer ultimately did with the witness and really get the opportunity to observe the witness in their own words, with their emotions, with their confidence, understand how did they come to this identification? Did they do so very quickly? Did they stare at these photos for a full minute? Um, What's the context there?
0: So what would a confidence statement by Tammy Nelson have looked like? Of course, it's impossible to tell, but we do know that Joseph Webster's private investigator interviewed Tammy Nelson before trial. The interview was recorded, and when we don't have that recording, we do have the transcript, and here's the pertinent portion.
3: Do you know Joseph Webster? No. You don't know Joseph Jawan Webster. Were you ever shown any lineups, any photo lineups?
1: I showed, like, a day or the next day after this here happened. They showed me some mugshots, and it was two fat boys I picked out. I don't know the guys.
3: Well, when you picked them out, were those ones you picked out, were they the ones that you— I couldn't be
1: accurate on it.
0: So first, Nelson saying she just picked out two fat boys doesn't show much confidence in her identification. But second, there's the fact that Nelson said she picked out two fat boys— And during defense counsel's cross-examination of her, this does not appear to have been a misstatement.
3: Isn't it true you told Bob Owens that in the interview that you had with him, that you just picked out mugshots of two guys that look like somebody that might be there?
1: No, I told him in that interview, I told him I picked out number five, Joseph Webster, that I know that it was him. And then the other guy that I picked out, I was sure, for sure, that was the other guy that was with him.
0: So yeah. Tammy Nelson is saying that she picked out two men as the perpetrators of the crime. And yet, there's nothing in the discovery documents about a second identification, and nobody else has ever been arrested, charged, or prosecuted for the murder of Leroy Owens. Defense counsel never followed up in this point, and it's one of many unanswered questions in this case.
3: Of course, the biggest unanswered question is whether Tammy Nelson could have mistakenly identified Joseph Webster as his brother Kenny Neal. And while there is no research specifically on the likelihood of misidentifying one brother as the other, Sherry Berkowitz notes that there is recent research that bears upon this issue.
5: I point your listeners to a recent article, a 2017 article, by John Wickstead and Gary Wells. And in this article they have some great discussion about why it is that misidentifications can happen. And in particular, the role uh, in at least part of this article, they talk about the, the role similar features would have on a misidentification. So, for instance, suppose then in the scenario you described that an individual is accused of a murder and police start to focus their attention on one individual. And that individual happens to look a lot like the actual perpetrator, but is innocent. In that kind of scenario, then the concern becomes, well, then does that innocent person look the most like the actual perpetrator? And when an innocent person, whether it's by happenstance or um, in this case, you're saying there's actual perpetrator, genetics being shared by these individuals, then ultimately the concern is, and we do see this in actual real-life cases of mistaken identification, that when the innocent person most closely resembles the perpetrator, but the actual perpetrator is not there, that witnesses can, in these contexts, come to make highly confident identifications and make mistaken identifications of this similar-looking person.
3: And according to Professor Berkowitz, there's also new research that might bear upon the second crime scene in this case, the scene of the murder. As we noted in episode one, the state presented one eyewitness to the Leroy Owens murder at trial, Fred Thomas McLean, a concrete worker who was building steps for the barbecue restaurant where the killing occurred. As we noted, McLean told police in 1998 that he didn't get a good look at the perpetrators' faces and he couldn't make an identification. But McLean didn't only speak to the police in 1998, He also spoke to them in 2005 when Joseph Webster was finally arrested for Owen's murder. What he said might surprise not only you, but also the jurors at Webster's trial, who never heard it. Here's a pertinent part of the report of McLean's second interaction with the police.
0: The purpose of this interview, to introduce myself, to obtain facts firsthand from Mr. McLean. During the course of the interview, I asked Mr. McLean to describe the subjects involved. He states the subject who struck the victim was a large male black driving a white station wagon. He states he did not get a good look at the subject's face, but has seen the same subject in an area before, always driving the white station wagon that was used the day of the assault. I asked if after the amount of time, he would be able to identify the subject who assaulted the subject. He advised he did not know, but would try. I showed him a group of photos, including Mr. Webster's. He viewed the photos, but was not able to make a selection.
3: This seems huge. While McLean didn't get a great look at the suspects' faces at the time of the murder, he was able to conclude that the driver of the station wagon that day was the same man he had always seen driving that same station wagon. And McLean was not able to identify Joseph Webster as that man. Perhaps unsurprisingly up until now, all of the research has focused on the reliability and importance of positive identifications when an eyewitness identifies a suspect. But how much can a non-identification, in which an eyewitness does not identify a suspect, tell us about that suspect's innocence? Colin asked this question to Professor Berkowitz.
5: That's what we call a non-ID, and unfortunately this is an area of research that's generally understudied. Some initial research has suggested that maybe though, these non-IDs, the failure to identify anybody, particularly the suspect, should be taken as more proof of the suspect's innocence. And it's certainly an interesting idea, and it's something that we need to understand more about. And actually, a doctoral student I know at UC Irvine, Jennifer Teicher, is looking at some of these issues as part of her dissertation research. And I know that she has a concern that in addition to the fact that non-IDs may actually be some evidence of the suspect's innocence, that she also is concerned that the jurors themselves may not really appreciate the probative value of the 9-ID itself. So some interesting research going on on this area, um, and I I hope that uh, the veterans are free soon.
1: So experts currently have questions about how much weight jurors put on non-identifications and how much weight jurors should put on non-identifications. And both these questions will hopefully be addressed in future research. But this wasn't even an issue in Joseph Webster's trial because defense counsel never asked McLean about his 2005 statement. That decision seems indefensible, but there was another omission that was definitely defensible. Defense counsel never referenced five other witnesses to the murder, And the reason this is defensible is that defense counsel didn't know about them. And Webster's post-conviction counsel didn't know about them either. At Webster's post-conviction hearing, the trial prosecutor testified that Fred McLean was, quote, the only eyewitness the state ever mentioned, or that, I believe, is known in this case to have actually seen Mr. Owens being killed. It wasn't until years later that Webster's current counsel got access to a supplemental report that listed five more eyewitnesses to the Owens murder. Now, in fairness, other police notes state that two of these eyewitnesses told police that they didn't see anything useful, and a third eyewitness is simply listed by the last name of Jordan, and we have no idea what he or she actually saw. But that does leave two other undisclosed eyewitnesses, Richard Henderson and Anthony Boyce. There's also a police note that states, quote, Mr. Henderson told Anthony Boyce to call police and that he saw everything. So what did Henderson say when Webster's investigator tracked him down in 2017? Unfortunately, not too much. This might be due to the fact that Henderson admitted to the investigator that, quote, all of his friends and family told him not to speak with me and not to get involved in this. Henderson did agree to talk to the P.I., but didn't agree to be recorded. And what he said generally lined up with McLean's story. Two guys in a white station wagon tracked down Leroy Owens, and one tackled him and hit him in the head with a cinder block while asking, where's my goddamn money? Henderson said that he was unable to make identification in 2017, but did give one piece of information that will become very important in episode three, that neither of the perpetrators were wearing gloves. And that leaves us with the fifth undisclosed eyewitness, Anthony Boyce. Unlike Henderson, he was willing to be recorded, and what he said was pretty interesting. According to Boyce, he was walking to a store when he saw the same general sequence of events that were described by McLean and also by Henderson.
4: we just walking up the street and dude, this guy jumped out the car there's barely, barely any word said and he's distracting
1: him upside the head with a brick. But Boyce's story then deviates from McLean's story in ways that are important for Joseph Webster's innocence. McLean said that the murderer was the man driving the station wagon, and he gave a description of a man who was 3 inches taller and 25 pounds lighter than Joseph Webster, who was 5'6 and 250 pounds. Meanwhile, here's what Boyce had to say.
4: Whoever did uh, hit him in the head, it was just one person. Do you think? Uh, do you remember if the one that hit him in the head was the driver or was he a passenger of the car? Uh he was, he was a passenger. Okay. You remember how I big? He, he was, you remember? I think how, he was sitting in the back seat. You remember how big of a guy he was? Uh I'd say around six six foot, or a little bit better. Okay. He wasn't that big.
0: Yes, that's right. Boyce described the murderer as six feet tall or a little bigger and with a skinny build. There's simply no way this man could be Joseph Webster. Of course, unlike McLean, Boyce also said the murderer was the passenger and not the driver of the vehicle. This is interesting because Philip Cotton is exactly six feet tall and was known to be a frequent passenger in Kenny Neal's white station
2: wagon. Here's Shawana Norman. Who would have been driving the car? Philip or or uh okay. I, I'm thinking Kenny was driving the car.
0: Okay, you think. You don't know for sure.
2: It's Kenny Carney. Philip didn't, uh, well, Phil didn't ever drive, so okay. he was always on the passenger side.
0: Now, in fairness, while Philip Cotton is six feet tall, he's not just tall but also wide and not someone you describe as having a skinny build. So it's unclear whether Anthony Boyce is describing Philip Cotton. But wouldn't it have been nice if the police had shown a photo array to Boyce back in 1998? Unfortunately, they didn't.
4: But you never were recontacted by any showed you any photographs or anything? Um, no, no, I've never seen any photographs or anything. Hey, you think if you'd have seen photographs at the time would it have assisted you? Do you think that you might have been able to pick somebody out? Did you see the guy well enough that he could have made an identification? Maybe, maybe back at that time. Wow. This, at this time I don't know. I understand. I, like, like, like I said, if, you know, it's just an in and out thing.
0: while memories fade, something else in this case did not. DNA evidence from the cinder block used to murder Leroy Owens. Next time on Undisclosed.
3: A big thank you to everybody who makes Undisclosed possible. Thank you to our sponsors who help us put on our episodes week after week. Thank you to Mital Dalhan, our executive producer, for helping keep this ship afloat. Thank you to Rebecca Lavoie, our fantastic audio producer, and also the co-host and producer of a couple of my favorite podcasts, including Crime Writers On. Do not miss her podcast. Thank you to Baluki for our logo, to Christy for maintaining our website. Also, a big thank you to our listeners. Thanks for coming back week after week check us out and make sure to follow us online on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at UndisclosedPod. And please do not forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. Thanks so much. See you in a week.